So the revolution begins then. Many of you today, in fact most of you looking around, have been faithful followers of Jesus for years. Some may be a little bit new in faith. One or two, as I watch folks coming in, may even be searching, not sure about Jesus. But the wonderful news about Jesus is his love, his relevance, his attention to life's detail is unique, it is personal, it is utterly authentic. And he knows exactly what it's been like for you over the past two years, right down to the most intimate detail. He knows it. And he knows what concerns and challenges you are facing right now. And from the very beginning this evening, I want to kind of follow on from where Dan began to take us and say these words to you. These words will sound the same in each ear as they enter your mind, but they are uniquely applicable to you. They are uniquely personal to you. And I believe what Jesus would say at the start of our evening chat together is this. I am with you. Peace be still. I am with you. Peace be still. Whatever turbulence, turmoil, pain, frustration, disappointment, challenge you might be facing, I am with you. Peace be still. Father, let the shalom peace of God which passes understanding goes beyond rational thinking fill our hearts and minds to which we're called. Come to me, he said, didn't he? Right at the beginning. Peace, be still. Now, Jesus' so-called revolution was a surprise. You could say Jesus was the surprise revolution. He was a surprise baby, surprise to Mary and Joseph, surprise to the innkeeper, surprise even to the rulers of the day. His childhood was a surprise took his parents by surprise at the age of 12, left them on their homebound journey and was found at the age of 12, having deep conversations with the religious leaders of the day in the temple. Jesus' business activity was a bit of a surprise. Probably carpenter, builder, maybe a mix of both, but working with his own hands, running the family business for 18 years, that was quite a surprise. And his ministry was a surprise. The people of the day were expecting a Montgomery, Alexander the Great type figure who was going to free them from Roman occupation. They got a shock. He didn't fit anybody's perception. He didn't fit anybody's mould. And I think those of us that are his followers still find that the case today. In fact, I've come to this conclusion. The only effective way to understand Jesus and know him better The only authentic way to follow him more closely, the goal of this series, is to let his own words and his priorities shape our understanding, our thinking, and ultimately our action and our activities. Now, he's constantly surprising us. He didn't call it a revolution, by the way. But even if you want to call it that, I can tell you it is full of surprises. I'm going to give you just six short surprises this afternoon. And the first surprise is why Jesus came. There's a great story in Luke 19 where Jesus initiates a face-to-face meeting with one of the most notorious, very wealthy business leaders in the town. He's a big shot. 
He's also a self-confessed liar and cheat. And so typical of Jesus, he's being followed by a crowd at the time, and unlike our reality TV, Jesus seems to shrink from all the big public stuff, the big publicity. And he goes to the individual, which he does in this case, to this business leader whose name was Zacchaeus. Now, like a lot of business leaders I know, he was short. And for that reason, he climbed a tree because he was desperate to see what Jesus was going to do and he wanted to hear what Jesus was going to say. Imagine his shock when Jesus stops under his tree, looks up, calls him by name and says, come down quickly, I'm coming to your home. Zacchaeus scuttles down. Lots of people in the crowd complain, by the way, they still do. Jesus touches the most uncomfortable, most unlikely, most uncomfortable of people. Why is he going to eat with a crook, is what they say. Jesus likes eating with crooks. This Jesus-initiated face-to-face meeting suddenly, just all on its own, floods light and life into the world of this liar, this cheat, this business big shot. And even as he joyfully welcomes Jesus into his home, somewhere in the back of his mind, he's already working out what his response is going to be because that's the nature of Jesus. That's the power of his presence. That's the wonder of when he takes an interest in you and me in our everyday world. And the outcome was life-changing. Because without Jesus saying anything, without Jesus pointing the finger, without Jesus bringing up the thief, the liar, the cheat... What's the impact? Just the love of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the power and the purity of Jesus does something within the life of Zacchaeus. And his response is from the heart and it's wholehearted and it's immediate. And he says, if I've cheated anybody, you have, Zacchaeus. But if I've cheated anybody, I promise to pay them back. Not just pay them back, but four times what I took. That's the power of surprising Jesus. There's a revelation when Jesus turns up. It almost doesn't need a preacher or a person to help because the life and the light that's in Jesus begins to do its work. Just his attention, his presence was enough to transform Zacchaeus from the inside out. And out of this deeply impacting story, Jesus summarizes his mission in verse 10 of That chapter in Luke, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek out, that is to intentionally, consistently look for and give life to those who are lost. He didn't come as a general, all-conquering, about to take on the Roman armies. He came to intentionally look for in a crowd, the whole crowd, the individual within a crowd, And give life to the lost. And folks, even in a crowd, even as we are a small crowd today, and by the way, thank you for coming. Thank you for persevering with what is a challenging time and showing up. Thank you. God bless you. He will bless you. He is blessing you. We're in the middle, not the end, don't forget. The stitches are out. We don't know what he's going to cut the cloth or wineskin shape into. But even in a crowd, Jesus is looking for every individual. The amazing thing about Jesus is he can do it all at once. 
I can give you six words, but they'll mean something different to each of you. Why? Because they're the words of Jesus. He's looking for those who are aware they are lost, and he will give them life. That is life beyond death that's eternal, but a transformed life in this life. And by the way, if you're in the workplace of any kind or one of the professions, take heart that Jesus has another surprise, and that is he is intimately, passionately concerned and interested in what you do and how you do it. That's Jesus. Surprise number two, Jesus confronted the establishment. There we go. And the regional leaders. It's quite interesting. He wasn't a military leader, but he wasn't meek and mild Jesus either. He took on the religious leaders. He took on the regional leaders of his day. Jesus hated hypocrisy. He hated the burdens that these leaders were placing on the lives of ordinary people. He hated the fact that their teaching was that salvation had to be earned and that no one was good enough. No one could do enough. No one could ever be enough. And he confronted that relentlessly at his own cost. He called them rude names, really rude names. He called them whitewashed tombs to their face, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them blind guides. He called them hypocrites. Matthew tells us he took him to task for taking the best seats at banquets. He took him to task for wearing the high-end clothing ostentatiously paraded in front of others. He took him to task for being wanting to be called rabbi or teacher or master. That's why in this church and others like it, we try hard to avoid titles. They had teaching programs, by the way, fantastic teaching programs, theologically rigorous. They did it in groups. They did it one-to-one. They taught about God, but in their hearts they had no love for God and their life was not full of following God. They never entered the kingdom of heaven themselves, nor did they let others enter. They were lost in a whole different way, but they could not see it. They preached about God, but converted people to dead religion. So Jesus' confrontation was not about the impact of their leadership and practice on him or on his disciples or on his ministry, but rather the impact that their lives had on his mission to seek out the lost and bring life. They were a burden, a leeching influence on the life of the very people Jesus came to seek out to give life to. And he made it his job to confront them on behalf of others, not to make his life easier. I found myself deeply challenged by this thought. I have confronted political leaders, I have. But to my shame, when I thought about it as I was preparing this, with one exception in the last 10 years, all my confrontation of political leaders has to do with what it's doing to me. The view from my house, not mandating the wearing of masks in public spaces because it's what I prefer. And only once, even remotely, could I think of one confrontation on behalf of others, but even that was contaminated with self. And I found that a challenge. And I wanted to throw out a challenge today. Could we 
know Jesus and follow him even into this just a little bit? Could we think about addressing leaders, confronting those who make laws or who implement them on behalf of others? I'm not even a work in progress yet, but it has challenged me. Surprise number three. Jesus put children first in the pecking order. Jesus' life flow was to care for children. I've never seen this because I've never looked before. The word children occurs over 500 times in the four Gospels. That is a substantial focus. It's a profound emphasis. It's an important word to Jesus because children were an important focus for Jesus. In Matthew 18, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus uses that very moment to call a child to him, and he places the child in the middle of them and says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's only days, possibly only hours, certainly only one page later in the gospel that the disciples then were faced with this little situation. The people brought children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus only just had this conversation with them. And then Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. The disciples were preoccupied with who they were and what their place was. Who was the greatest? After all, the Messiah they'd been expecting, a military conqueror, was going to bring with him the trappings of rank and power and status and position. And they wanted their little piece of it. Well, at any rate, they still hadn't understood his revolutionary scale of values in which the little ones were the greatest. When our son Joel was in his teens and well into his 20s, he used to ask for and pray for the kind of experience that Moses had with the burning bush. He was looking for an encounter with God that would transform his life. And occasionally he would talk about it and it was clear he was disappointed he had not yet had this experience like Moses did with the burning bush. By his late 20s and early 30s, Joel was running a successful tech company and in parallel decided to go to Bible college. He did his diploma and then started his degree course and during one of his dissertations, this was the verse they gave him. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He asked me and many others for all the books, all the commentaries we could give him that covered this scripture. He was never happy with a single answer he found. This scripture so took hold of him that almost imperceptibly it became his burning bush moment without him realizing what was happening. He stopped his degree course. He gave his time every Tuesday of the year, except Christmas or vacation, to work with a group of children from a deprived area of of the country called Bishop Auckland. 
They called it Sunshine Corner. An artist from one of our churches painted this picture for him, which is a kind of commissioning picture, reflecting both the impact and the moment of the burning bush encounter he had, which was a scripture, which leads me just to drop this seed in. It may be some of you in this room are looking for an encounter with God, which you've already had and not clocked. Is there a scripture that doesn't let you go? Is there like an earwig of a prophetic statement that you cannot drop? Maybe, just maybe, that's your burning bush moment and all you need to do is revisit it. Take the shoes off your feet and say, finally I get it, God. This is a holy moment. Joel did this for years, by the way, till his death in December 2018. That work still goes on. And since his death, the kids... Together with an adult team, some of you contributed to this when we did the heaven evening, thank you. They've completely rebuilt an area of the church, which they now call Joel's Cafe, which is a drop-in center for youth in that place, Bishop Auckland. Interestingly, by the way, they never planned it, but the kids' work got so big that the adults on Sunday morning have to go into the prayer vestibule and the kids have the auditorium. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Jill and I had the privilege of doing the Alpha Holy Spirit weekend with some of these kids and being present at some of their baptisms. Unruly, bad language, wonderful. (laughs) And I wonder if anything from these little scriptures have struck a chord. Our children are not the future in training. They're called micros in other places in the New Testament. Miniatures of the real thing. They are the present reality, the present priority, and the kingdom belongs to them. Rhoda and the team and Keys and the others who are out there right now and others of you that help. Those of you that home educate, those of you in state education or in any kind of work with children I want to affirm you this afternoon, not from me, from the words of Jesus. Whoever welcomes one of these welcomes me. It doesn't get more real, more authentic, more focused than that. And as you work with easy and tough children, with the stresses and strains of your world and its toll, remember that their angels do constantly behold the face of my Father in heaven. There is no other category in Scripture to which that is said. That's a reflection of the priority, heaven's priority. May we, like Jesus, find love for children at the center of our lives. And then number four, a forever focus on the poor. I think it's wonderful what Phil and the team's aim is and the growth of what they've done and their desire to get the the folks using food bank to a place where they don't need food bank. But I can promise you there'll be another cohort. It'll be a different thing. But Jesus said, the poor you will always have. And the surprising thing about his ministry is the very first thing he does in a synagogue, the church equivalent of the day, is to stand up at the front, take this big scroll, and he reads out of the book of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news or to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He reads a bit more and then he sits down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled. When Jesus told the disciples, the poor you will have with you always, he was opening a door that for all generations, Christians and church communities have been reasonably good at going through. We've done well with the food bank, and thanks to Dave and Iris, whose conservatory last year was full with donations for food. Look at some of the stats. There are now more food banks in the UK than branches at McDonald's. The poor you will have with you always. It's a forever focus in the kingdom of God. Basingstoke Food Bank, I don't think you mentioned these in the end, Phil, feeding 800 people a month, distributing about eight tons of food per month. That's just one town. Let me skip to, um, this is not working for I, you're going to have to help me, pal. Oh, there we go, here it goes, one more. Andy and Sharon Forbes, some of you know them. This is them outside Buckingham Palace getting an award from the Queen last year for taking care of the poor. They run a small church in Milton Keynes, 70 people. And in 2018, they give food bank parcels to 800 people. In 2020 lockdown, 7,277 people who received over 22,000 food parcels. That's a church of 70. They also add vegetables, fresh vegetables, each week to the food bank parcels. They do a lunch takeaway. Next slide, please, for I. Uh, It used to be lunch club. In 2018, 4,890 servings of lunch in a lunch club. 2020 in lockdown, 7,001 servings given out through one little hatch so that they were COVID compliant. Baby basics, next slide please for I. 2014, they started with 64 babies and children given Moses baskets and clothes. 2021, over 1,200 children plus all the refugee children from Afghanistan that were funneled through Milton Keynes, roughly half the total number. That's a church of 70. Interesting, right through the New Testament, the Jerusalem Council, Paul himself, constantly talking about remember the poor. That's a forever focus from Jesus. And surprise number five, next slide for I, the revolution for women. I have to confess on behalf of Robin and myself. Actually, I blame, I blame um, Rob. I, I did mention to you, Rob, I needed to use the facilities and you did show me a door to use. And I went in there and I met Robin in there. And in those places, men have a certain type of conversation that only men have and they only have in that kind of place. Only to be told later we were actually in the ladies. So apologies <laughs> if anybody was there when we had that conversation. (laughs) Honestly, leaders, you just can't get them these days. Jesus used to visit the home of Martha and Mary. Mary was the one described sitting at Jesus' feet. That was the place of a theological student. Couldn't help but think of you, Nancy, when I was thinking about this. Martha moaned about it, Mary's sister, She said, look, she should be helping me do the chores. Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better thing. And it will not be taken away from her. Disciples including Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna accompanied Jesus in 
Uh, by the way, they actually funded Jesus. I don't know if it was their husband's money or whether they ran businesses or where it came from. We're never told. Uh, but Jesus gladly accepted it from women. In one well-known story, a promiscuous woman in a house, possibly a place where she may have been sexually active, is stood behind Jesus. This is not PC in any culture. She begins to be transformed from the inside out. Just the presence of Jesus. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. By the way, the same hair she would lightly have braided and let down for her clients. Wiping the feet of Jesus. She poured perfume from an alabaster all over his uh, alabaster jar all over his feet, and they reckon it's about a year's wages worth, hers or somebody else's. The religious do-gooders couldn't handle it. They were righteously self-indignant. Doesn't he know what kind of woman this is? The disciples couldn't handle it for different reasons. They've got the idea of helping the forever poor, so they're saying, well, hang on, what a waste. Why couldn't we have sold that perfume and given it to food bank? Is what they're saying. Jesus' answer? Another surprise. Utterly amazing. Profoundly moving. This woman, they're all thinking how dirty she is. He says, this woman has done a beautiful thing to me she's prepared my uh, prepared me for burial and then he says this they wanted to hush it all up they wanted to shut it all down it's embarrassing it's not right she's the wrong kind of woman jesus says truly i tell you wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world what she has done will be told in memory of her and then jesus says to the woman in front of everyone, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. He knew what even she didn't know. That her very public act of vulnerable, extravagant, exuberant love was outward evidence that her many sins had already been forgiven. The transaction had taken place. I wanted to say this, I don't really know why other than I will say it. There are some of you ladies in this room who have done some extravagantly public, vulnerable acts of worship and felt dreadful afterwards because you watched others look at you. I want you to know Jesus received it, appreciated it and saw it as beautiful. When Jesus was arrested, guess what? Who was it that was at the foot of the cross? Who remained firm when the fellows ran? It was the women around the cross. In the New Testament, he ignored strict rules that governed male-female interaction, which, rather like the Taliban on our recent news, was limited only to family members. In John 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman unnamed at the well, and totally disregarding the religious and social convention of his day, he had a conversation with her. And this conversation is particularly poignant because Samaritans and Jews had a long-standing dislike for one another, as strong, quite possibly, as black-white contentions 
in apartheid. There are other examples I could give. But Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman is the longest conversation recorded in the Gospels. Ladies, he can handle your 10,000 words better than your fellas. I say that with some experience. But this meeting is extraordinary because it challenges the prevailing social norms of the day relating to gender, ethnicity, and religion. Jesus gave this woman more conversational time than anybody else. And then there's the woman caught in adultery. I'm running out of time, so let me skip to the point. This woman is brought in front of Jesus. The religious leaders wanted to trap him, and they said to Jesus, Moses says, you've got stone him. And Jesus says nothing. He bends down and draws in the sand. I'd love to know what he drew. If only someone had an iPhone and took a selfie. <laughs> Was he doodling? Was he buying time so that he could chat to his father and just check out what to do? I really don't know. But his answer is amazing. And by the way, notice the perverse twist to this. The male offender is not brought along. Only the woman. Why do we do that? Jesus didn't. Anyway, he looks up at them and his answer is surprising, isn't it? They've said, Moses said, we're to stone her, basically saying, what are you going to say? He looked up at them and he said, let any one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And starting with the oldest, every one of them drifted away. I have to say, I would have hung, hung my head in shame and I'd have been amongst the first to go, just to be clear. But there's another big difference that I wanted to touch on right here. Our world is very tolerant. We live in what's called a pluralistic society. And at a very simplistic level, that means everything goes as long as you don't judge others. You can believe anything you want except the Bible and Jesus is the only way, interestingly. Our world is very tolerant of most things. And I just want to give you another surprise, maybe. Jesus is not tolerant. It's an important distinction to make. He doesn't judge. He accepts the person. And then it's as if the Holy Spirit through him confronts the sin. He looks at the woman and he says, has no one condemned you? No, sir, she says. Then neither do I, says Jesus. And he could have said, I accept you, I love you. Feel free to go off and commit adultery again. That's tolerance. No. Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. That's not tolerance. He doesn't beat around the bush. Love and acceptance, but sin confronted, named, dealt with. What about your view and mine about those who have fallen into sexual sin? What about your view and mine of somebody who's had an abortion that we've got to hear about or we suspect? Do we judge and somehow assume that our good living, our moral high ground is a basis for us to judge? 
Do we assume our sin of covetousness or anger or just a little bit of porn on the internet is somehow not as bad as abortion or infidelity which seem for some reason to us to be far more sinful or serious. Can I encourage us all not to judge the sin of others Did you hear that? Chris said, can I encourage you to listen to a story? Let me give you a story. Are we all right for a couple of minutes? Was that a yes or a not really? <laughs> it, I asked him if it was a yes or a not really. He said it's a yes story and then a quick number six. Uh, one of our young people was at university studying to be a nurse and... Um, she had this dream, and in this dream, she saw someone screaming as if they were being tortured. And then in the dream, she saw the hand of Jesus uh, open a door, enter the room, and the screaming stopped. Peace filled the room. And she called Jill and me. She said, any ideas what it means? I said, to be honest, I haven't got a clue. You seek God, find out, come back. And she came back and said, I think it's for a girl called Marsha. I've changed the names. What shall I do? I said, well, what do you think you should do? She said, I think I'm going to invite her around for coffee and I'm going to share the dream. Anyway, she invites her around for coffee and she shares the dream. And Marsha says, no, it doesn't, it's not at all relevant to me. But this girl is convinced. And she says to Marsha, do you know what, Marsha? I really do think this is for you. And Marsha just broke. And her story was this. She'd had an abortion at the age of 17. She hadn't been able to talk to anybody about it, and the doctor had said to her, you have a medical condition which means it's your life or the life of your child. She went to church, the, the abortion was on Monday, she went to church on the Sunday morning, and she said to God, if anybody asks me how I am, I will tell them what's going on. And that morning, nobody asked her anything. Nobody reached out. She never blamed the church, by the way. But from that point on, she'd lived in torment, in torture, never been able to tell anybody until that dream opened the door. Imagine our joy when about two years later, Christmas Eve, I get a call on the phone and the person says, that Mr. Oliver? I said, it is. She says, do you recognize me? I said, no, who is it? She said, it's Marsha. She said, I'm just ringing. To tell you, I've just given my life to Jesus. If by any chance in this room you have unresolved sin, we will not judge you, a normal Jesus. But he will accept you and show you the way to life. And that's forgiveness and release. As the songwriter puts it, my chains are gone, I've been set free. And if while I've been talking, something has just caught hold of you and you know you've got to sort it, then talk to the person that brought you, one of the leaders here, or anybody you trust, and sort it. And lastly, daytight compartments. I'll be really brief with this. 
Jesus had a way of handling life. Worry, anxiety, and fear appear 260-odd times in the gospel, 290 times in the gospel. And Jesus says this. He says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And we know now from neuroscience, Dr. Carol Lorman, who's taught uh, in this church, what she calls daytight compartments, that we are wired, created, designed to live within 24-hour chunks of time. And that means if you start worrying about the big picture, the big problems beyond today, you've already moved into a place where there will be no faith. Why? Because Jesus said, don't do it. Do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And I have learnt, I think, over the years, if you ask Jill, ask Dave Rebetz, he knows me well, I'm a worrier. I just am. I wake up in the night, I worry. I write stuff down because I've got to do something with it. And the, the day I prepared this, I woke up, I was compounding worries. I had a financial implication in my business that was challenging. I had a person that had been scammed of a lot of money, and I mean a lot of money, trying to help them. There were some relational challenges going on, and I was really angry, and I had no idea why I was angry. So that's how I woke up the day I'm to prepare this. Often happens, by the way. When you're operating in your gift, the enemy's going to try and get at your hamstring, your weak spot, your Achilles heel. This is what it is for me. So that day I did what what I have to do every time this happens, and it's every week. Some weeks it's every day. Some weeks, if I'm in a good week, it's one day, but it happens. I check the things that are worrying me. They're like the red light on the dashboard. They're not really the issue. They're telling you you've got an issue. And I name those issues, and then I sit down with a bit of paper, and I decide with God's help what I'm going to do about it today. Not tomorrow today and that's what I had to do the Thursday I was uh, preparing this there's no way I could have prepared for this talk or anything else by the way without listening to the words of Jesus do not worry about tomorrow but handling with choices what action I could take today and as I did that interestingly a hymn came to my mind which I then googled I'll praise my maker while I breath just played it it's not rocket science is it but all that from the words of Jesus so a Jesus full of surprises he starts the hub gathering in URC and says come to me a Jesus that is intentionally looking for the lost in order to give them life a Jesus who confronted power on behalf of those who couldn't a Jesus who put children at the heart of everything he did. A Jesus who gave us a forever focus on the poor. A Jesus who made space, received love from, and empowered women. And a Jesus who taught us to live in daytime compartments.